0: I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 12 of Caro Pop. This episode's guest is not only one of my favorite singers, but also one of my favorite people in the rock world, Sally Timms. I first heard and saw Sally back when I was writing for the Boston Phoenix after college. I'd hang around with the paper's arts writers, and my good friend Jimmy and others kept talking about imported albums from a British band, the Mekons, with titles such as Fear and Whiskey and The Edge of the World. Jimmy took me to see the Mekons at the Paradise, and a year later, I was back in Chicago seeing them at Cabaret Metro as they promoted a raucous classic of an album, the Mekons Rock and Roll. I was knocked out, not only by their energy, but their spirit. This was a laughing in the face of the apocalypse kind of party. By the end of their shows, half the audience would be dancing on stage with them. While John Langford and Tom Greenhall, the two main songwriters, sang with gruff post-punk voices, Sally Timms brought these beautiful clear tones to lines such as... She had a knowing, world-weary attitude, yet danced with joyous abandon, did cartwheels across the stage, and was funny as hell, especially when she and Langford were taking the piss, as the Brits like to say. She was my hero, and I was not alone in feeling this way. The Mekons are still recording, and each album features one or more stunning Sally Timms tracks, such as Ghosts of American Astronauts on So Good It Hurts... John Anderson's Wild and Blue, On the Curse of the Mekons, Wild and
1: blue, it's no wonder, I look at the things that you do, Well won't you just take a look yonder, honey, you're
0: already wild and blue. And the would-be smash hit Millionaire on I Heart Mekons, or I Love Mekons, depends if you like pronouncing the heart sign. Anyway... The Mekons didn't actually have smash hits, but in a better world, they would have. In the ensuing years, John Langford and Sally Timms each moved to Chicago and stayed. They're among the most active, civic minded people in this city whether they're supporting independent clubs, boosting the art scene, or backing other worthy causes. You are- Year, I'd look on the Chicago Vaccine Hunters Facebook page and there'd be Sally Tins helping strangers find places to get COVID shots and lining up transportation options for them. I bet very few of these people knew what a huge talent was working to protect their health. When you hear what was going on in her life at the time, you'll be even more impressed. Sally doesn't cartwheel across the stage anymore, but she still performs with the Meat cons and in various configurations with John Langford and others. She has released solo albums and keeps putting off work on a mysterious sounding art music project. You'll hear what she says about it. She also talks about her longtime friendship with the late Pete Shelley of the Buzzcocks, the Mekons' mixed feelings about the recent documentary about them, her anti-careerist attitude, and her sense of duty to spread joy from the stage, especially when times are as dark as these are. Please enjoy, as I know you will, Sally Tibbs. well sally welcome it's great to talk to you in this format after having heard you sing and perform and talk to you and so other so that was like a terrible (laughs) beginning that was so bad start again this is how we roll (laughs) i I, usually just sort of starts in the middle of a conversation so that's fine so you just performed with john and john and martin all four of us yeah
1: martin comes along as a mascot and plays his harmonicas Yeah, um, we played at um, the Epiphany, which is a church on Ashland that was occasionally a venue the Empty Bobble used to book there, and then I think they booked Psychic TV, and that put an end to it when the church found out Hmm. what Psychic TV were about. But uh, it's just been redone, and it is beautiful, actually. We played in a smaller chapel room called The Sanctuary, and it's – it's a lovely space so it's a good addition to our long list of excellent clubs in Chicago.
0: How often do you perform now?
1: Uh it varies. I mean I would say about oh, 20, 25 times a year, maybe a bit more than that. But when we're playing with the band, obviously it becomes more than that, but we only play every few years with the Mekons. So I do things when John asks me to do it. And recently I've been kind of encouraging him to ask me because after the pandemic, which was you know, pretty difficult for musicians um We started doing what I would like to call our small shows or micro shows, where we just go to a place we want to visit, find a gig in a non-orthodox place, like not a club, um, and do essentially pretty much a acoustic show with no PA. And we just sell the tickets or someone sells the tickets for us. So it's a little like a house party. And I've got really into the idea of doing these kind of things. So it's basically a, a way of paying for us to go and have a really great time in places like New York or LA or whatever catches our fancy. Well, we did three in New York. We went out there and we played. So oh, this club TVI, which is opened recently by Todd Abramson, the guy from Max uh, uh, Maxwell's, it's beautiful. It's a club and we played in the afternoon. The other thing is we're doing afternoon shows because we're old. And even though John <laughs> is very lively, I'm less lively. And so I want to be back at home by about six or seven o'clock at night after playing a gig. So this is the new Sally Tim's concept for old people to be able to still go out and enjoy themselves and then be home in bed. To have a nice cup of tea and watch TV or go out for dinner with your friends afterwards. Very civilized, in my opinion. So we found this other place. John was doing his art sale, he does an annual art sale for the holidays. And we played in this beautiful loft in Red Hook, and a friend of ours found it. Um, and we just played there completely acoustically and they had three grand pianos in there and Dave Nagler came down and played grand piano and uh, it was just a a really lovely experience. And then we also played at uh, Yola Tango's Hanukkah party on the Saturday night.
0: Nice. And you've been playing music with John Langford for what? Like... 40 years, something like that. I mean, since early. Yep. I mean, because early 80s would have been. I mean, mid 80s, I guess, is when you joined the Mekons, but you knew him already by then, right?
1: I did know him already by then. And he encouraged me to start. I mean, I'd done a record when I was about 18 with Pete Shelley. And then I started spending more time in Leeds and hanging out with the Mekons and the Gang of Four and basically every other band that existed at that time, because everyone was in a band. So I started doing a band with these women I knew called the She He's and we just did covers. But then he said you should sing country music because they were getting sort of obsessed with country music. So he really encouraged me to start singing and making records in a more formalized way, which I hadn't really done before or even thought it was possible, actually. You know, that was not background I came from. So, the whole uh, kind of outcome of punk rock for a lot of people who weren't standard musicians is it was okay to make music. It was okay to just put it out. You know, the whole idea of do it yourself, you just went ahead and did it and you didn't have to have a classical education in music. You didn't really know how to play your instruments. And then you just went ahead and made music. And there were some pretty interesting outcomes from that. And some of us are still around
0: doing it. What was your background? Like what kind of music were you singing when you were a kid? And what were you listening to and dreaming about as far as music went at that point?
1: Well, I can't remember when I was a really little kid, except that I was in the the church choir. So I did sing and had a pretty nice voice. I know that I have, you know, I'm lucky I have a good shaped head. So there's lots of (laughs) resonance going on there. And, uh, I sang in the church choir and I sang a lot of church of England, Wesleyan hymns, which are beautiful actually. Uh, and then, (laughs) I I mean, I never, ever thought I would be a singer, but I um, met Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks when I was about 18. And he, I was telling him that me and my friend had invented this language and we'd were just were singing these oddball lyrics and he went, let's just go and record it. And so the next day we went in and just did a completely freeform record, recorded it for 40 minutes, played pots and pans and synthesizers and He put it out on his label, Groovy Records, and that was called Hankahar. And it's actually, weirdly enough, still one of the records that I am most proud of. Um, But it's not for everyone. But I love it. And it's me singing in kind of a mad faux operatic, Yoko Ono (laughs) style with just gibberish lyrics and lots of people banging around and making a racket. But uh, post that, then, I suppose the things I was into when I was, when I became aware of music, which I suppose is, you know, what, where we become truly influenced about 13, 14, um, was things like glam rock, Roxy music, David Bowie, um, all that kind of thing was very appealing to me in that really affected pretty much everyone of my generation. It was on Top of the Pops. Right. You no, know, it, it was just ubiquitous in the way that suddenly you would, everyone would gather around and watch Top of the Pops every week, which these ideas don't happen anymore. People find music differently, but, you know, and then just fire friends, but Roxy Music and David Bowie had big hits and there they were dressed as in strange clothes. And the 13, 14 year old me was just like, that's, that's it. And quite a lot of us went that route. And then punk happened about four or five years later. And uh, then that was, that really resonated with me. And so at that point I went to loads of shows and I met The Mekons, because I was living near Leeds and just through mutual friends, completely random, when I was about 19 or 20, and started just hanging around with them and everybody I knew in Leeds was just in a band. That's how it went. If you weren't in a band, you would be in, in one within about three weeks of hanging out with everyone.
0: So the Buzzcocks, you know, they were late, late seventies. They kind of hit their apex. And I think what different kind of tension their last album before they broke up was I think 79. I met him
1: right after their first record came out. Uh We just became great friends and that was it for me i mean i used to go over to manchester and just hang out with him and go and see loads of really amazing music there too but you know they were a pretty big band at that point so right. yeah
0: you know. i was wondering if it was sort of easier to just meet people on you know that that maybe was less of an industry or something because you look back now and you think well the buzzcocks wow those are these classic records but at the time you're probably going to their shows and you're like introducing yourself right
1: well, we lied and got backstage by saying we'd <laughs> lost cameras. We were, we were uh, acting like we were groupies, but not really for any sexual reason. We just knew that I don't know what it was. I just knew I really, really wanted to meet him, and I made it my business to meet him. And he became a friend of mine uh, throughout my life. You know, right up until his death, it was and like I remember that. Yeah, we were, we were still. I mean, he he was a very, very... He he shaped my life. I mean, I can't deny it. He was a fascinating person and he really had no interest in being, I mean, I'm sure he liked being famous on one level, but really he was completely egalitarian. I mean, when I met him, they were all as a group of people all living in the biggest dump you've ever seen in your life. And he would be on top of the pops and then just come back to this house that was squalid. And so it was just very amusing to think that people who actually, for all intents and purposes, were viewed as famous and making loads of money, but he was just living in essentially a squat. And um, so I don't know. He just was not bothered about those things. He was a a very idiosyncratic person.
0: What was it about his, his music and him that you responded to so strongly?
1: I don't know. I can't answer it, actually, because, you know, I suppose I was obsessed with Mick Ronson, too. Maybe it was some weird girlish crush that led me in that direction. But why them? You know he seemed very smart. He seemed like someone I needed to know, as Grail Marcus said once about right. us said, there are still people in the world that you might want to meet. And I don't know what simpatico, who knows what drives you to go. That person is someone I would like to have in my life, but that's how it
0: worked, yeah, because those songs of his are so searching and you know, yearning, and yet they they also have this tremendous energy and it sort of has punk energy. And then you wait, then you realize, oh, these are these really melodic pop songs with these raw emotions and, uh, all these things together. It's really powerful.
1: It's, I, I think he's, he is a very, very interesting writer because what he was trying to do and succeeded in doing, in my opinion, was that, you know, he's very much into, Japanese culture. He, and and he used to do the I Ching and all sorts of things, but I think, or I Ching. And he was always trying to hone everything to the absolute minimum. And that's the way he plays guitar. And he is a fantastic guitar player. Those solos and everything he did, he's a really, really good guitar player, but he's chosen to play that guitar in a completely minimalist way. And he said that there's this really great, um, documentary that you can actually find on YouTube that was made by Tony Wilson. And it's got Howard DeVoto and Pete talking about, you know, when they divided magazine and Buzzcocks and uh, it was made in like probably 19, I think about 1978, 79. And they're just talking about the way they do things. You can see how different they are. Um, But Pete makes it very clear. That's what he's trying to do is, you know, talking about, uh, the personal being political, um, love is a highly motivating emotion in our lives and and a dominant one, but also trying to strip away and just get to the essence of things. So I don't know. I think he's it's weird to say it, but I think he's very underrated in lots yeah. of
0: ways. I think a lot of people don't know him. And then they they hear the word buzzcocks. If they don't know the music, they think, oh, well, that sounds funky or something. But yeah, well, it's great.
1: Or I just think, you know, because it was somewhat poppy, people didn't take it as seriously as, say, The Clash, you know, or The Sex Pistols, who really just sound like an R&B band when you get down to it. I mean, I love The Pistols, but it's not like the music was particularly groundbreaking. It was just rough sounding. And then you had Leiden singing, and he had such an amazing voice that, it made you pay attention. But uh, I don't know, I think that the Buzzcocks were uh, interesting, they were fair, he was very much into, um, you know, all the Neu, all the German krautrock bands. And so that whole thing just just, uh, transferred over, but he turned it into pop music.
0: Of a much, if I can say, there's a much better voice than most uh, men or women who got into punk rock, <laughs> and 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 so and, and part of what was striking about the Mekons is that they would have this loud, you know, this this energy, and and but you would have this you know, such a clear, beautiful tones in it, and I'm wondering if you were ever sort of everyone tried to sort of sway you into sort of moving more into the kind of pop spotlight kind of thing or, you know, even like musical theater, you know, you could do like the Julie Andrews <laughs> sort of uh, yeah, Julie Andrews. or
1: um like that. Um, I, I, I have a very, I can have a very pretty sounding voice. I sometimes feel like to my detriment because I can't, you know, it's a bit like Marianne Faithful, you know, she had this beautiful, pure sounding voice but it's like, well, what can you do with that? It's difficult because... You, she she decided to like take it in this other area i don't know how she did it but she created something that was very gravelly and sounded uh in a way like it has more gravitas because of that you know it's like an anti voice in a way so i don't know sometimes i wish my voice wasn't quite as kind of clear and pretty sounding, but I can't really do much else with it other than scream. So I'm just, <laughs> I'm just stuck with the way it sounds.
0: Um, no, but you, but you put a lot of attitude behind it. I mean, and I mean, with a small a, it's, it's not like you're, it's not like you're sort of singing these incongruously pretty voice songs, no. or, you know, the rest of the band in a different attitude. I mean, you're totally in sync with the music. It's just that that's yes, really good.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I, I sound, yeah, I, can't make myself sound like Tom, you know, and Tom has in the Mekons has this, to me, an amazing voice, um, which is not everyone's cup of tea, but I could just can't sound like that. So I can, I can only sound the way I do. I don't know. It's just the shape of my head.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But the kind of music you wanted to sing, was it, was it always this kind of combination of rock and I guess this kind of country I mean I think you sort of came into the country thing or did you did you have visions of I mean you've never struck me as a very careerist person at all but did you ever have like visions of I'm going to have this sort of thing to showcase myself or no
1: and I suppose that shows that I'm not particularly careerist I I have a sort of passive approach to my musical career if you want to put it that way I like being part of a band, a group. I don't want to be the front person. Um, I like the communal aspect uh, to what we do, uh, where none of us are kind of rising too much above the others. So, I'm not one of those people. I always say, get someone on a stage and you'll find out what kind of personality they have, you know. So I have no great desire to be up there particularly. I don't mind it, but I'm not clawing my way to be front and center. And so I think, um, you know, the country thing, it suited my voice and and we were goofing around with it with the Sheehy's. And then John said, well, you should just sing some country. So we made a few records before I joined the Mekons that were – folky country sounding, far more at the time, more country than the Mekons were sounding. And then all of that started pulling in uh, to the way the Mekons started to sound too. Uh, They were kind of tinkering, I would say, with more English folk music at the time, having come out of... uh, the rougher kind of punk period, um, where it was quite primitive sounding in the way that the band played. And then people like Steve Goulding and Susie was playing violin, Lou was Edmonds joined. And so all these people had um had better musical chops if you want to put it that way and so it did you know take the band in a different direction
0: yeah and you and you kept recording like you did your cowboy sally uh later so you stuck with that right um tell me about meeting john langford originally and how and sort of the chemistry that you guys have
1: i met john probably around 1980 i think maybe a little earlier than that and he was uh just just through a, a Leeds connection via my cousin. And we became really, really good friends. But I was friends with everybody at that time um, in that circle of people. So these were – it was a weird time in, in um, punk when I think back on Leeds. We've, we've talked about it recently because it, in some ways, wasn't a happy time. There was a lot of aggression. There was a lot of violence that was happening at gigs. There was just – uh, and just the same kind of feeling that perhaps we have now that there's just this pall hanging over everything and yet people mm. were making stuff but you know it was it was a time of social unrest there was a time of like a lot of people not really doing very well financially and so punk you know it has this element to it where it is a reaction to a kind of darkness, uh, a national darkness that was happening, and so um, we had these tight knit little groups of people. But you know, outside of that, I remember there was often it wasn't the kind of camaraderie that you always think it was. On a certain level, it was, but I don't have happy memories of that period being like, oh, this is great, you know. But then. Um, I moved to London in about 1985 and around about that time I sort of became a more full-time member of the band a little later than that and then we just started touring so you know John has been a consistent part of my life since I was about 20 and I'm
0: 62 now so that's a bloody long time. (laughs) But what was he what was he like at the time was he did he have that kind of I mean, it amazes me just like how many different things he's working on all the time, whether it's art or this concert or this cause or, or all of this. And, and was that something that was happening back when, you know, Yeah, three, he's like, he's years ago?
1: He's uh, it's slightly in a slightly different way. But, yes, the same idea. I mean, John does not like to sit still particularly. And so even when we were on tour in the van, you know, everyone would be just staring out of the window in a torpor and he would be drawing in his sketchbook, writing stuff, you know, he was always making uh things in one way or the other. But I think, you know, over time we we hone our personalities and, and the things that, you know, we get better at doing the things that drive us. And so I mean he just does he's busy. You know, I have a day job, but he his life is his day job. So making art, making music. He, he likes to be like that his family are very active he comes from a long line of of very active women <laughs> <laughs> except he's not a
0: woman <laughs> well and you were you were talking about how people's personalities come out on the stage and and you made it sound in case there's anyone who's listening who doesn't this, you made it sound like you're sort of like in the background and being passive but you're very present when you guys are live oh. and, the, and the and the and the banter between you and John is like hilarious, like just about every show. And that there's, and there's, you, you you two have obviously known each other for a long time and are on this similar wavelength, wavelength where you can have these very cutting, funny remarks and it's just, we'll go back and forth. And occasionally, you know, you'll hit someone else like Susie with it. I think there was one show recently where you said, you know, she's a really horrible person. She's, you may think she's beautiful, <laughs> but she's horrible inside or ugly inside, <laughs> which is great because obviously it wasn't true. And obviously you were just it is saying, true, but- why do you think it isn't?
1: She is horrible inside. She's a very evil person. They, she spends her whole <laughs> life is dedicated to evil. No, she's, you know, I mean, we're we're from England as well, Britain. You have to remember that this is how the British function with each other. There's taking a lot the taking the piss. There's a lot of that. Uh, and there's tensions and they can be lanced like a boil on stage, sometimes successfully and other times not. So, you know, it's not all sweetness and light. But yeah, I mean, I'm always curious about... I mean, I know we're a good live band. I know it. You know, we are entertainers and frankly, I feel like, especially now, I feel even more so now that um, I've been doing it a long time. So getting up on stage is not... A scary prospect for me. I don't get stage fright or anything, but I think the whole purpose of being up there or, or any kind of performance, whatever form it takes, you know, you are there to connect with people and you're also there to lighten their lives. And that doesn't mean everything has to be superficial or jolly, but you are supposed to be bringing something that can provoke whatever form it takes, but I'm very, very conscious recently of bringing lightness to the things that we do. We have serious songs. The content of what we do is serious, um, especially with the Mekons, but the shows are a communal experience and should be joyous because we're alive and we have to live our lives with whatever joy we can find. It's not possible to be necessarily happy all the time. And you have hard times in your life, everyone does, but we have to find those moments of joy. And I think that's become a kind of fundamental thing for me that when I'm on stage, I want to bring that feeling. Uh, it, it's it's very important that people go away having thought about stuff, but also go away a little lighter.
0: I I I know I'm not alone in saying this or thinking this, but I think the greatest spirit I've ever sort of felt at live shows have been Mekon shows. Yeah. I, like like a, like the most joyous shows I've ever been to, and I've been to a lot of shows. Have mm-hmm. been you know have been Micon shows, and, and and I remember in the early '90s, and there are great ones I've seen more recently too. But it seemed like every show ended with like half the audience on the stage, <laughs> and you know you know, the roadie coming out to sing, where were you and
1: Mitch yeah.
0: and, and just, uh, but, but just these, just the, you know, everyone going nuts and just sort of celebrating and, and jumping around. And while at the same time, you know, singing like destroy your safe and happy lives before it is too late. So there's totally that yin and yang of the content and the attitude toward like, it's, you know, it's like, it's, it's like sort of a joyous defiance to the darkness. Right. I
1: think, I think so. I think that's, A very, very important thing. I think it's actually a very profound thing um, to recognize that lightness is possible even when things are extremely difficult. And I think that's something that actually is a problem with American culture. No one wants, no one's capable of, well, not no one, but the culture itself isn't capable of holding two opposing views. It's a delusional culture, which I think is we were talking about this earlier, you know. Why why is America the only country pretty much in the world that has this number of cults or conspiracy theorists or you know, any number of things? School shootings don't really exist in other places. So what right. what's what's going on with society here? What's wrong with it? Because there is something seriously wrong with it. Um, and no one wants to really discuss what's wrong with American culture and society. Why are we in this point where, I don't know. And it's like, it's always been the same. You know, you go back to carnies, you go back to like, go back a hundred years, go back longer, snake oil salesman. There's always people being preyed on people just reaching this point of disappointment with what they think life should be. And, what it actually is. And it's um, somewhat delusional. And so it's interesting to me because I've lived here a long time now and, you know, it is my country. And I know there are things that I think are more amazing than anywhere else I've been. And there are also things that are more repulsive than anywhere else I've been. So it's always, America is always just like fighting with itself the whole time. And I, I don't know, I feel like what we do, regardless of whether we do it here or or anywhere else, but I think it resonates here more. We've always done better here than anywhere else, strangely enough, is that we do bring something joyful and we bring opposing ideas. You know, so I don't know, where do we go in this way? What direction are we heading in the USA?
0: Yeah, which and it feels like it's getting worse. I mean, and maybe it's just because we're we're we have more ways to know how bad it is now. But it certainly feels like the, the conspiracy theories and the you know, you know, just sort of the common sense. Some of us have a well, people won't go for that. And it's the like, oh. internet.
1: We should turn off the internet. It's simple. Just turn it off. Hateful thing. The internet is ruining our lives. I mean, there's things I like about it very much, but you know, yeah maybe, maybe we shouldn't have access to every stupid crappy ass piece of information. When I grew up, there were two TV stations and the BBC was pretty fantastic. And it was an educational tool, but then, you know, that's out of the box. I'm like, what do I know? I mean, I know young kids like twenties and earlier, and they're awesome. So, I have a lot of hope, actually, for the young generation that are coming up. They are going to kick our asses. I Um, hope so. I I think they are, you know, and they live with a lot of there's a lot of struggles. I mean, in this city, there's a lot of struggles. Imagine, you know, we have no concept of what it must feel like to see your kid go to school and you're not sure if they're going to come home at the end of the day. Like, that's not how we live. But people in this city live that way, you know, there's a lot that a lot that has to be sorted out.
0: My, my daughter's a senior and, and uh, in high school. And today uh, there was some loud noise outside the gym and they locked the gym and the teacher was like, if anyone's coming, I'll protect you. Yeah, and they it's... had this and they had this moment of total freak out because they thought. Oh, Someone. my God, there's like a shooter in our school and there wasn't. But the right. fact that that seems like that a has to happen for a kid in a normal, regular public school anywhere in the country right now. I mean, we well, can get off on that. But but it's it's yeah, it's 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 stunning that that's something. And, it, and you know, they have the Internet in other countries, too. And we still have our own unique. Well, I was going uh, to say, problems. you
1: know, th- Things are do seem to be getting worse. I don't know if that's true, but they seem to be getting worse in lots of other places. They're definitely worse in the UK. People are at each other's throats. Behavior seems to be people's behaviors. I don't know. People don't seem to be able to cope with the pandemic very well. I just, just, Brexit. just wear your mask.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: We are seeing a lot of fracturing, though. I think that is definitely real it's happening as you know that post maybe it's just always the same perhaps this is cyclical we had uh you know right after right before we were born there were two world wars so maybe people realized perhaps we need to rein this crap in for a while and now everyone's forgotten and so perhaps this is human nature i don't know i hope well,
0: I was it gonna, is, but... I was, yeah i was gonna get to this later but like the you know, when the vaccines started coming on the market, you were so active on the Chicago vaccine hunters (laughs) Facebook page. And so this is, this is something where the internet is good, but you were, Uh, that was on, you know, giving information and helping people get vaccines back when there was a sense of that, you know, back when the problem was that people couldn't get it not the problem that there were too many people who didn't want to get it. Um, but that was a, that was a tense time. And, and, and you were totally, you you totally had this, I'm going to roll up my sleeve and help out in any way I can (laughs) attitude um no I I admired I because I I was just like wow she's you know and you know and people aren't engaging with you because they're like oh like a a rock star is helping me they're just like this is just this (laughs) caring person who's like stepping in who's totally a member of the community and is is you know feels like this is what is called for that's my interpretation
1: uh it was one of the most positive uses of Facebook I've ever seen, you know, people just got together and it was uh, a hive mind um, with people just going, there's this, there's this. And I think for me, it was just, to be honest, it was a weird period for me, which I don't usually talk too much about personal stuff, but I had two craniotomies in March and I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I was in hospital for nine days and the nurses would say... I don't know if you should be on your phone this much, but it got me through it because I was just on that phone the whole time looking for and remembering. I have, I think maybe because I'm the organizer of a lot of the tours and stuff, I have a good memory for like, oh, you can do this there. So I could remember all this information. There were people on that site who were just geniuses at sitting up at three in the morning, waiting for the appointments to come up on all the, pharmacy websites and just finding people appointments to me that was completely something i could not do they were just sitting there like like little monkeys pressing on on keys to try and get people appointments the minute these appointments dropped but that wasn't something that i could do but what i could remember a lot of the time is the instructions for what to do and what places had vaccines. So that was what I could bring to it. And it was just, I don't know, I just got, yeah, it was all during the recovery from that surgery. I was just kept doing it. And it was the one thing that I found I could keep doing without my brain shutting down.
0: So So you were lying in recovery in another state yeah, helping, helping people in Illinois and Chicago get their vaccines. Well, there's not much to
1: do when you're out of your mind on oxycodone, <laughs> except for try and find vaccines for people. You know,
0: a lot, of, a lot of people would have been watching all <laughs> those. Uh, you know, would have been <laughs> exhausting Netflix at that point. So, no, I, d- I do things. that
1: when I do that now. When I'm when I'm completely compeśmentis, I couldn't really even look at screens. I could look at my phone. That was it because my eyes were, one eye was swollen. So it was just, it was just kind of mad, but I don't know why I could keep doing it, but I did and it kept my brain going. So I think it was probably beneficial, but all that, absolutely. All that, all that information. Well, for other people, but I don't know if it's beneficial for me. But all that information is now gone, of course, because I can't remember anything longer than a certain period. <laughs> but it was an interesting time, and it was real, really fun to be part of that. And I think that's another thing. You know, it's like I feel bad for people right now. They're getting sucked into all these things. I was, you know, have a a friend who was really getting into, you know, an ancient alien obsession with like, and going on and on about this stuff, never been interested before. And I feel like those are all routes to those things that sort of almost designed to take you away from everything that feels almost culty. And I was like, you know, Take an online cooking course or learn Spanish. Get get away from this, these internet wormholes. These and these are bad uses of your brain. That's not where you need to go. You know, this stuff's happening. Who cares? Who cares if the government's screwing with you? It's always screwed with you. Just live your life. You know, it's like you're not going to be able to know what what the government is doing to you, particularly if they're keeping it totally secret and no one's asking you to unravel it. But the, re- well, the weird thing to me is the conspiracy has always been in plain view, but people want to find these elaborate kind of reasons to, it's like people can't deal with reality. I don't know. Right. You know, it's a, it's a strange thing to me, but I think there's a lot that's out there. This was a very healthy use of Facebook. It was filled with real data, real information. There was a tangible result at the end of it that meant that people who wanted to get help got help, as opposed to just losing yourself in these paranoid kind of wormholes that, and it's very, very easy to do on the internet. And a lot of people are lonely. It's like, I do feel there's like this great loneliness. So that's the other thing I've felt about us doing these tiny shows. So getting back to music as opposed to a kind of half-assed analysis of what's wrong with the USA, et
0: cetera, et cetera. (laughs) um, I think it's it's three quarter assed at least. I think it's pretty (laughs) full. I think it's close to full assed. All right. Well,
1: You know, the the idea that we could do these things that just brought people, people were really, really enthusiastic because, you know, they hadn't been out to gigs for a long period of time. So, you know, how could we do that relatively safely initially? You know, could we do things that were outside? So that's what we were doing, like uh, doing gigs outside all through the summer. I mean, some people were doing them indoors, but I didn't do much that was indoors. I didn't like the idea of it too much. Um, and so just making a space for people to get together and see like-minded people and have a good time. And that was was a really, really fun experience and also go, well, let's go and do that in New York because we want a holiday and we're going to LA in January and going to do the same thing and see friends. So this idea that you can kind of stage quite small events and and they are funding themselves. They don't have to make right. a lot of money. I like that idea. I mean, it's not it's not an option for bigger bands, but I think for people like us, you know, the pandemic, the the effect it's had on us as musicians is probably uh, far more limited than it is for people who are actively needed to be out there and that's their only form of income.
0: So... Yeah. yeah, and you had John Langford playing on the backs of trucks out in <laughs> you know by Fitzgeralds, yeah. and out he'll and out, do anything, know, of the suburbs yeah. and, and all of that. Um, it's funny because like I lived in Boston when I first uh, was discovered the Miconz, uh, you know a good friend of mine got me into you guys, and I'd seen you at the Paradise on the uh, honky tonkin' tour. You guys are this really cool band that was from England. And then at some point, uh, Steve Goulding ended up in Chicago. John Lankford ended up in Chicago and you ended up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like my favorite band was like a Chicago band, partly <laughs> or you know, in large part. Um, it, is it just a coincidence? I mean, I mean, you guys moved for different reasons, but, you know, it's there's something fortuitous about the fact that you and John ended up in Chicago and, uh, you know, are able to sort of continue your artistic and friend partnership and friendship and everything here and also have, have adopted Chicago in a way with, with such enthusiasm that you become like kind of the best citizens we have, I think.
1: (laughs) Well um, we came here a lot because we were uh, initially we, for one thing, Terry Nelson was here and Terry was basically the person who really started Uh, introducing the band at the time to a lot of country music and saying that the Mekons were like a country band. And so, he really did like, he was part of that change of direction, if you like, or or absorbing that into what we did. And so, we would come here and play, and, and it would be a kind of haven, as would New York. So, the two cities... Uh, were places that we gravitated to. And our agent was here, Botch, was here from Billions. And so, uh, when we started booking through him and then going on to Touch and Go, which was a label that was based here, I mean, things became very consolidated in Chicago then. Steve moved here first and got married. John moved here to get married to Helen. And then finally, I was dragged here to get married, um, against my will, (laughs) (laughs) but I was living in New York, you know, and I never thought I would come here. I was like, no way. And I hate to say it, but when I moved here, I just felt like I'd moved back to Leeds. I did not get it. It was the first time I realized that I was living in America because New York just felt like Europe. It was like, that didn't feel like such a, a culture shock. But when I came here, I, I, it was, kind of difficult. It took me a long, long time to get used to Chicago. And now I love it, of course. And I just appreciate so many things about it that I much, much prefer over New York or London. But, you know, I'd been living in these, you know, these these are like you know the moving and shaking cities, and suddenly i just felt like what am I doing here? What's going on? You know, this <laughs> what the hell is it? There's no hills, everything. It was just weird, and you know, everyone wore cargo shorts, and so oh, I I I don't know, I just I struggled, but finally I came around So I suppose. You know, four of us ended up in America. Eric moved to LA um, of San Francisco initially and got married. So four of us met Americans and settled here. It made sense that that probably would happen given the amount of time we were spending here anyway. Um, And the rest decided they didn't want to marry Americans. Maybe (laughs) they just have really high standards or americans have really high standards i don't know which it is
0: what was it about chicago that made you come around i don't know i think
1: i changed a bit uh and chicago is not flashy you know so chicago isn't flashy like new york or london or barcelona or any other like you know capital cities. Uh, I suppose it's unfortunate, you know, Second City, but I don't know why it is. I don't think that's the reason it's called Second City. But the idea that it didn't reveal itself for a while to me, um, it seemed very low key. And um, then slow it was when a lot of people were moving here as well. Nico moved here, the handsome family were here towards us. All these people, all these bands had come, all the people who'd moved in at about the same time, there was this whole scene that built up Drag City, all the labels, thrill jockey. So there was this thing that was happening. And I think as I became sort of more part of what was happening in Chicago and just being involved in the clubs and and just feeling like this is actually home. Uh, or maybe I just became more Americanized. You know, I'd only been in New York for five years and perhaps perhaps slowly it won me over. I don't know.
0: Well, the Mekans are such a communal band and it seems like you really discovered a community here. So maybe there's some parallel. I mean, yeah. you know, whether it's around the hideout or just around these groups of musicians or, you know, on Touch and Go and Bloodshot. I mean, there were, there were all these kind of tight knit it was very
1: tight knit and, and you know Dave Trumfio was here, was spending a lot of time with Dave and then he moved to LA but you know there were just a lot of really really good people so that, that kind of cemented it slowly I suppose.
0: So John and Tom are the main songwriters. How do they, how do they work it? Do they, do they tend to each come up with songs and, you know, maybe they'll say, Oh, this one would be good for Sally to sing, or do they kind of collaborate on them? And how does the whole process work and how does it, how do they figure out which ones you're singing? well,
1: Well, um, I would say especially in the past, I would say Kevin was also quite involved in, in writing songs. And um, so, as time went on, people don't. Well, let let me explain how it works. When we go into the studio, generally we don't function like a band where a couple of people bring a finished or semi finished song. Um, we have ideas about things, so the records essentially have a concept. What's it going to be about? You know that will be. The kind of discussions that are had, and people will have snippets of things that they've been exchanging. Uh, John and Tom write a lot of the stuff, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's found in books, etc. etc. A lot of magpie behavior that's gone on, and so people will come into the studio with some very, very basic ideas, maybe some slight tunes sometimes, but generally. Uh, we have started from scratch at the beginning of the recording, but it's been a little different in the last, I mean, that was how we would record in the 80s and 90s. I would say in the 2000s, we started doing things a little differently, yeah. largely because we were all in different places. And right. So, what we would do, and we've carried on doing more and more is rather than just go into a studio for six days and go, right, go, record it all, finish... Now, we find locations that we want to go and record in, and then we'll start doing bed tracks there, but often taking things away because now you can, of course, because it's portable. I suppose that was the advantage of digital over tape. But you would be able to just take recordings, fiddle with them, do new vocals, do everything in different locations. Uh, How does it work as far as, well, someone will say, do you want to try and sing this? But often there's no, or or there's a vague melody line. I'll have to come up with it. Um, There are songs that I've sung the first time I've sung them is when someone handed me the lyrics and they say, sing it. And the second or third take is what ends up on the record, which isn't the way that in a standard band would behave. So we don't really or haven't really recorded in that way. It's not like we get together and rehearse once a week and we never really did do that anyway, even when we were closer to each other. So we have a pretty unorthodox way. And I would say that that came out of, you know, not being being familiar with being a standard band from the very outset. I mean, obviously some of the band members are familiar with that, but the idea that we would come with ideas, but everything would form while we were together in the same room. And uh, so that was what we used to do when we recorded in studios, um, when we were still recording onto tape. But after we started being able to do things more, um, in a more fragmented way, we would do certain things in a certain location together. And then we would take it away and add to things. And records would take then about six or seven months sometimes to get finished, sometimes less, but, you know, or longer. So, there were longer lead times. And that became a time when we would just go off and, you know, we recorded uh, natural. We went to a little village where Wordsworth's buried and recorded there in the Lake District and did part of it in just a house. And then we rented another house and and recorded in there. So we were moving away from actually doing things in formal recording studios and just bringing in portable studios and having the location. And then we went to a studio for Deserted, which was the last um, studio record we made. And that was done in Yucca Valley in Joshua Tree. Um, So no, but it's not necessarily finished at that point. In the past, we would we would have to finish uh, within what the five or seven days—the ridiculous amount of time we'd set ourselves. Well, this is not Brian Ferry here with six months of recording time and three months looking at which guitar you're going to pick. It's like it's hard work. <laughs> it's the Mac- McDonald's version of like you know, just start, start, go, finish. That's it that it's not right doesn't matter that's it we'll make it right when we do it live
0: so a song like club mecon does john or tom play it for you and say hey you want to sing this or and then are you kind of coming up with melody on top of it or how did that one?
1: Yeah, come up with some of the melody sometimes they'll sing me ideas of what they want but they'll play this track and they'll you know just, I'll come up with something. I have not listened to the recorded version of that record in probably 20 years. No idea. Can't tell you. I mean, it's done and then it's gone. We just, we're just moving on. We're heading into the future. We like future
0: music. (laughs) Do you listen to any of those albums?
1: Actually, occasionally. You know what I listened to recently? There's on archive.org, there's tons of of really old recordings of live shows. And a while ago, I was working at my desk here and I thought, I'm going to listen to some of these Maxwell shows that were from like 1992 or something. And uh, I was actually really, really impressed with how good it sounded and how tight we were. But that stuff's great. The records are of less interest to me because I often feel like in some ways it makes for interesting anomalies, but because we never really rehearse the songs a lot before we get in, they've always changed by the time we've played them for a few years and they've become something else. So often the songs live don't really, I mean, they sound like those songs, but it's uh, the tempos change. A lot of stuff just changes in the way that we perform them. So when I listen to the records some things I like a bit better, but other things, I don't know, but I just, I don't listen to them.
0: There's just, yeah, there's some songs like cast no shadows where I think of you performing it live, as opposed to however it was on that, that first record where it showed up, um, which I think was the untitled one, but, uh, but there, there, there are a few of them that are that, that I associate more with the live performances and other ones where I'd listen to the album so much that I still think about the albums. Oh. Wow. Do you listen to albums? I mean, are you an albums person? No, not really.
1: I don't listen. I'm a a bit of a moron, actually, because I don't really read very much anymore. I watch a lot of movies, but I don't read that much. And I should start again. I spend a lot of time staring at my phone and I've never been someone who listened to tons and tons of music at home. I think men do that more than women, to be honest. My boyfriend listens to loads and loads of music. It's a bit train spottery for me. I don't go, I must listen to these new things. So sometimes I'll go on YouTube and look at, you know, if I hear people being written about, then I'll listen to it or Martin will play me something. But I don't really listen to tons of music.
0: You see so you're actually an 18 year old girl because that's how they treat music too. They'll go on YouTube and listen to some songs. Yes. And they'll and, they, know, and they, but they won't listen.
1: spend hours and hours doing that. Like they're I don't know fathers
0: might do Yes <laughs> right, which I would No I definitely was going to buy the Album and like listen along And then read the lyrics until at some Point Thank like, God, reading, reading the lyrics Is messing me up because I because then it's making me Expect the end of the song I need to like let it Play out more natural I mean I was like that much of a nerd Where I actually had to sort of be critical of Myself for reading along with the lyrics oh. like, no I'll read The lyrics later Thank right.
1: thank God there are people like you, Mark, or we would still be sitting in, in Leeds and no one would have asked us to go anywhere. So it's a good thing, but it's not something that I do.
0: I was telling John you it's it's time for like the big Nikon's vinyl box. I mean, everyone's been doing these and actually you know, had
1: theirs and yeah. And, that uh, is probably going to happen. So, I Told them
0: I'll write the liner notes if you want. Yeah, okay, but, uh, I'll tell them that. <laughs> I not, that not that I'm out. angling for this in my own podcast, but you know, it's yeah, <laughs> a job it interview.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. I think I think That's that will it. happen. Although, you know, I'm. I, I think both of us. Are, I think all of us are kind of on the fence about um, about hauling through our back catalog and past. To me, it's like I I I am happy that this band still. Makes new music, and that is the important thing when we go out on the road. It's like obviously people want to hear certain songs from the past, but you know, it, it's not stuff that we were playing when we were twenty. That that's all people are waiting for in the set. You know, we we put out a record last year during the pandemic, and it's like just did it completely remotely, and we were all in different cities. And so, I like the fact that we don't spend a lot of time worrying about should we repackage this and put it back out so people can can hear it again in some different format in in a very attractive packaging but that's that really is is not high on our priority list but people keep asking us to do it so i'm sure eventually we will
0: well, you had the, the documentary that came out a few years ago. I mean, was that sort of torturous for you to look back on or was that? Yeah, nice?
1: it was very difficult at first. It caused a lot of problems within the band in the sense of um, I didn't want to do it. Actually, I'd said it from the beginning that I did not want to do. I didn't think a documentary was what we needed uh, and what would it be anyway? And how can you encapsulate such a long period of time? You know, it's a long history with the band, how are you gonna get that into two hours and who's interested? But also just the idea of hauling over the past. Um, so it was very, very tough for us at first to differing degrees. I will say now that I like it. Uh it took me a long time, and I thought it's a useful thing. And I think, you know, I think Joe Anjo, who made it, his intentions were very good, and I think he probably Regretted what wading into, you know, what people's perceptions of us are. It's much more complex than it looks on the outside. It's not this happy go lucky band of merry minstrels who, you know, just roam around the countryside entertaining anyone they come across, you know, there's personalities and clashes and ideas and all sorts of things that go on there about what is it, you know? And so when you start putting it forward in this format, then it becomes that format. That's it. You know, this is how people are going to perceive us. They're going to look at that and they're just going to, those will be the highlights of what people think are important in our history. And that's, that's what I really, really struggled with it. And at the time it was just seemed like there were 50 million, everyone's and their dog had a documentary. And so it was tough Now I think it's a useful thing and it's out there and and also the dust settled. And so it's not a priority anymore for us. It's uh, there for people who might want to look at it and see what they think, you know, and I think it's informative, blah, blah, blah. But
0: I did did it cause tension within the band.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Loads. Very, very problematic it's a difficult thing. Imagine, you know, imagine that you had a partnership with eight people and someone wants to come and make a film of your 40 odd year history or whatever it is.
0: You know? And and so any of the drama in there would be a conflict that would be sort of resurfaced or was it a sense of people not liking how they're being portrayed or.
1: It was just different things, you know, to be honest, and I'm not, Going to tell you exactly what it is because I have some protectiveness towards <laughs> like we don't, don't, you know, we're not Fleetwood Mac here. But uh I don't know, everyone had a different issue. Some people were okay with it, and then some people started out okay with it and became not okay with it, and some people were, were down on it at the beginning and grew to like it. I think it was more. We just didn't know how to respond for one thing to have having someone with us filming and wanting to, you know, ha- having an idea of what they wanted, uh, which is the only way you can do it. But, you know, I don't know. It just was a really, really weird thing.
0: Well, and if your whole orientation is looking forward and not looking back, you know, having a documentary is about the, as much in conflict with that idea as you can get. I yeah. And think.
1: it's, it, well, it's not with the, that we just look forward. I mean, you know, we're keenly aware of our history and history in general, but you know, it's like, what's the point rehashing over these things? We made that record. It's out there. These things are out there. You can find them. We don't need to encapsulate it in a documentary. And what does it matter? What our feelings on certain things are, there's plenty of interviews, et cetera. Etc. cetera, that have spelled that out. So the idea that, you know, that was a moment in time, it's like painting the same picture over and over again. Well, why would you do that? You know, you would just surely want to make something that kind of resonates with your life at the time.
0: Yeah, I think one of the functions of documentaries too is that it lets more people know about who you are and 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 i know that there are you know various bands you know there will be a band where you know someone like big star or the mekons for that matter where you're like oh not enough people know about them this will help more people know who they are and so yay that exists and that happens even though documentaries don't tend to be the most commercial form of film there is anyway but somehow you know letting more p- exposing you to more people uh is probably seen by a lot of you know fans as a as a good thing well if they're um, fans
1: then we've already exposed ourselves to them say anyway, well, did we get any new fans from the documentary maybe i don't know um but i will say that it's at this point it's a perfectly acceptable companion piece to many of the other things that we've done so i feel like i i am peaceful with it but
0: it was it was weird (laughs) do you have uh kind of artistic aspirations of things you want to still do at this point like any sort of specific projects where you're like i've always wanted to do this and i have to do it now or soon
1: uh, yes, but I would say that's been my uh, the bane of my life from about 18 onwards that I've been saying that I have to do this and I still haven't done it. I mean, I've done things that I've fallen into or put myself in the way of so that it happened, but I'm still grappling with my home recording studio and not much is happening and I will eat chocolate rather than get on with the work. So, I don't know. It's um, clearly, as you said, I am not a career driven musician or even a a driven musician. must have fallen into it somehow. And luckily enough, I've been swept along by the great Mekong's Tide. We are going to do a shanty festival next year, hopefully in Red Hook. That's a plan. Uh, so things like that, I like doing. I like organizing stuff. But when it comes to actually making records of my own, it's like pulling teeth.
0: And you're doing this cruise. I heard. I heard an ad on Little Steven's Underground Garage. <sighs> right after I think you mentioned it in a in an email, and I was like, Yeah, there it is. They, made, they mentioned you guys on on the radio.
1: We so it must are. Be true. Doing a punk rock cruise, the great rock and roll sea cruise from Athens, Greece, to Mykonos, Mykonos, and uh, <laughs> to Izmir in Turkey with a bunch of other aged musicians.
0: <laughs> that that was the, the most enthusiastic summary of <laughs> I've ever had. I
1: don't know what it's going to be like. People said there are a lot of fun. And that's why we kind of said yes because the idea of being on a cruise together playing on a cruise in the mediterranean just seemed like the most mad idea and so i thought people would say no and we would say do you want to do this but weirdly i think it's post pandemic you know it's not even post but let's see what happens i know um but they're pretty strict actually i will say you've got to have you've got to be vaccinated and you've got to have a negative test 72 hours before you get on the ship so Let's hope. But, you know, I mean, anything can happen right now. It's not everyone's comfort zone.
0: But I I think I should cover that. I think I should do like a podcast a day from that thing. You should. That would be fantastic. There's
1: a swimming pool. That's what I'm looking forward to.
0: And um, I would love to have a swimming pool at my disposal.
1: I asked Steve Diggle if he would come and play with us and do a buzzcock song. And he said, yes.
0: So awesome.
1: Yeah, we'll see. No, I don't know. I mean, it's just John's done the outlaw country cruises, which are done by the same people. And he said they're really, really well done. So I don't know. You had the one with,
0: where they were backing Lee Scratch Perry.
1: Yeah. And they were he was going to they were going to do the Waco's were going to do a record with Lee Scratch Perry. And then the pandemic came and then he died. Right. He was a, it was all ready for him to come to Chicago to make a
0: record with the Wacos. No, I thought that sounded so cool when he told me about I that. Know. And there were the little pictures and stuff from the cruise ship. I was like, wow, they're they're actually backing leaf Scratch. Yeah, today. yeah,
1: yeah. Can so they what's, said
0: this, it what, what's this home recording project you haven't gotten done?
1: I don't know. It changes every bloody five minutes. I don't know. I mean, you know, I I, I still really like sort of oddball experimental music, but I don't seem to make any, but I keep thinking, can I do that? Can I be the next Scott Walker? Hmm. I can do a better job than Scott.
0: <laughs> so is this an is this an album then?
1: It's not anything. It's an idea. I don't know. You know, ideas need to be hammered into something in order for them. So really it's, it's like, it's like a crush. It's an imaginary world and it's not coming out. It needs to come out because I haven't got that much time left. So I better get on with it, but
0: we'll see. Have you, are there bits of things you've recorded already for this?
1: There are bits of things that I have as uh, ideas that I have sung and made noises on. There's elements to it, but it's not happened yet. A million other things will will rush in and take its place that I will happily do, like going to watch TV in a
0: minute instead of working. Well, I would love to hear some of it, but uh, whenever you're ready to share. You may one day. You never know. All right. Well, Sally, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming to talk. with me. Thank you. That's it for episode 12 of Carol Pop. Thanks to Sally Timms for all she has shared here and on stage, on record, and out in the world. You can watch Revenge of the Mekons, Joe Angio's 2013 documentary about the band, through various online outlets such as YouTube and Prime Video. And I encourage you to go down the deep rabbit hole of the Mekons and Sally Timms' music. You won't regret it. Her solo album, Cowboy Sally's Twilight Laments for Lost Buckaroos, is available on the Bloodshot Records website. Come back for Carol Pop episode 13 next Thursday as we go face to face with a legendary 60s rock producer. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by the great Chris Swake. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M A R K C A R O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, culture, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks.